Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the 4th of July, a 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, striking patriotic themes our way on Independence Day. Congressman Lou Correa from California District 46 will offer his experiences meeting in Tijuana with veterans who've been deported. A reversal of their fortunes will be of interest. In the second segment, amidst many breaking news items, Orange County Chapter of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence Board members Charles and Mary Lee Black will consider National Rifles Association initiatives staunching diminished sales, court rulings in the latest state and federal legislation. It's mighty consequential, I tell you. Well, this year's 4th of July Optics Award goes to Governor Chris Christie enjoying the beaches of his New Jersey while closing all of the state's parks over the weekend. Louis Manzo, whom I interviewed August 19, 2014, offers a lot of context about that. You can go check it out on askaleader.com. Be right back after a really short one. Welcome back to the show. My guest for this portion of the program is Congressman Lou Correa, an attorney and licensed real estate broker. Congressman Correa was first elected in 1998 to public office to serve in California's State Assembly, where he served three terms. He then served two years on the Orange County Board of Supervisors, representing the 1st District. He then went on to serve in California State Senate's 34th District from 2006 to the end of 2014. He was elected to U.S. Congress last November and serves on the Committee on Homeland Security and the Committee on Veterans Affairs, pertinent to today's topic. And His subcommittee work for Veterans Affairs includes Subcommittee on Economic Opportunity and the Subcommittee on Health. In addition to elected office, Congressman Correa previously served on the following committees. The Board of the Orange County Family Justice Center, the Orange County Board of the Gang Reduction Intervention Partnership, also known as GRIP, and was a commissioner of the California High Speed Rail Authority. Congressman Correa graduated from California State University Fullerton with a Bachelor of Arts in Economics. He completed his Juris Doctor, his law degree, and Master's in Business Administration from UCLA. He comes to us today from Santa Ana while on this 4th of July Congressional Recess to talk about his visit this last May in Tijuana with the veterans who've been deported. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Congressman Correa. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be with you on this program. So uh, let's talk about, it was at the end of the month of May this year that you went down with an entourage of sorts to visit with veterans who have served in the American military 
who were deported. They had not completed all of their paperwork for their residencies to be fully documented. I let's first let's talk about the background of why they are in the position where they are. Well, thank you very much, and uh, let's start at the beginning, which is, as you know, right now in this country, we we are again uh, questioning and asking the questions about immigration and how immigration fits in the role of America and what America really is. And in my opinion, this is a question that we ask ourselves probably every decade or so. Uh, immigration has been an issue in this country probably for about the last 240 years or so. Oh, and, your minds, and, yes. and, and again, we're asking that question again. And um, immigration has a lot of issues that pop up. Uh, one of those ancillary issues that we discovered uh, was the issue of deported veterans. So what does that mean? Well, it means we have uh, legal residents here in the United States that served America honorably, meaning they, they served and left the military honorably, honorably discharged. And these individuals, after they left the military, somehow got themselves in some trouble for some reason or another, were then lost their legal residency and were deported. So the trip to Tijuana was myself and a number of legislators who consider this an important issue, visited these veterans who now live in Tijuana. And we wanted to find out a little bit bit more about their situation. Congressman Corey, could you tell us who was a part of this entourage? Who else accompanied you that in uh, well, those representatives? Well, there was about six or seven. Uh, Congressman Castro, Nanette Barragan, and probably a half a dozen of us, all of us, of course, having an, uh, a keen interest on the issues of immigration. But I think more importantly, uh, all of us have an interest in making sure that our American veterans are served well, that we essentially uh, fulfill our moral obligation to all of those veterans that serve this great country. And I think all of us were shocked to find out that some of these veterans actually had been deported. And so uh, about a half dozen Congress folks, we all showed up in Tijuana for a day to find out what was going on. So maybe we could take a, a measure of the extent to which the, this was a very revelatory meeting. Were, were there, in your entourage, were there people that were quite surprised by what you encountered? I can speak for myself, and I was very surprised to learn that Again, these folks, you know, were in Tijuana, flying the red, white, and blue, living in a bunker, so to speak, uh, trying to survive in a country that they probably didn't know. Most of these veterans had grown up in the U.S., had been in the U.S. all their life. Again, joined, served our country some far back as Vietnam War, right. and found themselves in trouble with the law for whatever reason got themselves in trouble, were convicted of something, served their time, did the crime, did the time, and then once they were released, they were essentially, uh, their legal residency was pulled from them, and then they were deported. So the first discovery I had was these folks committed a crime once, maybe twice, but served double, paid twice for that crime. Once in terms of, you know, having to pay back their debt to society for that crime. But number two, their legal residency was taken away from them and they were deported. So these folks paid twice for the same crime. 
The other issue that I found to be most ironic was um, as I walked into this bunker, I saw probably 10 dog tags up on the wall. These dog tags represented 10 veterans. Those were the tags that they put around their neck. These tags were essentially belonged to deported veterans that had passed away. And it was interesting as the veterans there told me that because these deceased veterans served honorably and were discharged honorably, they had the right to go back to the U.S. and be buried in the veteran cemetery with full honors. And a benefit. Exactly. So you had these veterans deported, died, their bodies came back to the U.S., were essentially buried in the veteran cemetery with full honors. Yet, before they die, meaning they're still alive, they cannot come back to the U.S. So that was a major irony of this whole situation. Indeed. I was very much honored by having Hector Barajas, who, with whom you visited on that day in May earlier this year. And when he was speaking about that with, with guest Jan Meslin, who is a part of the Civic Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, it's also known as Civic, that the offenses that these deported veterans had committed, for which was the basis of deportation, it was it ran a quite a gamut of things, including one of them had written a a a, a bad check it was something that was a was not I'm not sure how he described the the, the bad check, but. There was a way he was able to explain it. It wasn't really a, a serious crime. Um, let, let, let me let me restate your question with a different way to answer it, which is the following. One of the things I discovered when I was there was that their crimes were were really, you know, uh, a vast you know array of crimes. Right. From uh, the most serious was, I believe, a gentleman who woke up in the middle of, a, of, of the night in a nightmare and turned around and punched his wife. PTSD. To me, that sounded like PTSD. Right. He woke up, he, he felt like, you know, something, something went off and, and he, he hurt his wife. And because of that, he was convicted, residency, you know, he, he, he paid for that crime and then his residency was, was removed. There were other less severe crimes there. And they were also, of course, whether technical or not, they were convicted, residency taken away, they did their time, then they were deported. Um, so, you know, the, the, the crimes themselves are, are a wide range from maybe, as we said, maybe technical white-collar crimes to some of these, you know, assault and battery, battery offenses. All very serious crimes, but nonetheless, the question we ask ourselves as a society is, do these veterans pay twice, meaning... They're convicted, they do the time criminally, and then the second payment they make, which is the residency, is removed. That's the central question that we're asking ourselves. As I mentioned, the other discovery that I had when I walked in was seeing all of these, uh, you know, these, these tags, these military right. tags around, you know, that these veterans wore. And there was approximately 10 of them there. Right. And our guide said, these Ten individuals, they said, passed away. Once they passed away because they were honorably discharged, have the right and were returned to the U.S. for a, a proper 
veterans burial at a veteran cemetery, which to me was very ironic that right. alive, honorably discharged veterans could not return to the U.S., but once they were dead, then they could return to the U.S. That's another question we have to ask ourselves. Number one, you know, how do we do we really treat our veterans? Number two, should there be a difference between a veteran who passes away and one that's still alive in terms of their ability to come to the, back to the U.S.? And number three, should there be a difference how we treat veterans, residency or citizen? All of these veterans, of course, are individuals who sign up as volunteers, fight for our country, you know, put their lives at risk, and when they return, there's a different way of treating those that are citizens and those that are residents. Maybe what we need to do is say to these veterans, you know, once you have served honorably, you have a right to become a citizen. And if you do, what is it that you need to do to become a citizen? See, to me, that's another question we have to ask ourselves. Well, I'd like to find out if there's something on the, the Veterans Committee you're serving, if there is a way in which you can be codifying a different procedure for the veterans who have completed their tours of duty, completed their service, and are receiving the proper processing. They are being sort of shepherded through a, a process that gets them the, to they maintain their documentation so their path to citizenship does not get put on hold and then uh, dissipate and where they lose that train of documentation so they become then undocumented veterans. So is there anything at, that the Veterans Committee is doing now so that the Department of Defense is offering more assistance to these veterans so that the documentation does not lapse? Well, you've, you've asked a very important question, uh, and let me answer it the following way, which is I know there's some legislation uh, moving through to essentially ask the armed services to assist legal residents in becoming citizens before they leave the armed services. Okay, before they come back stateside, we need them to make sure that this is what you got to do to become a citizen. Second question is, do we streamline that process so that you essentially have a leg up on becoming a citizen because you serve this country? And, and number three, I can tell you right now that um, it sounded, based on you know our, our anecdotal research right now, that there weren't any Air Force veterans they're actually deported it was the other services that had oh. deported individuals so i'm trying to figure out does the air force do something different uh or unique to make these these residents citizens help them become american citizens or not and if they do if we can essentially replicate that effort to apply to the other uh armed services so you have one two three issues three possible areas of activity but our trip to Tijuana was to bring uh, attention to this issue. That was a big part of this. Um, again, immigration is, again, a hot topic in this country. And once you begin to ask those hard questions, you begin to address these ancillary issues that pop up everywhere. Well, Congressman Correa, 
does it make sense that also there could be codified in the recruiting process a very clear pathway that those that sign up for military duty, that they, they see that pathway very clearly, not a kind of a, you know, a sweeping, we'll take care of you with getting your papers in order once you've served. I mean, is, isn't, isn't that maybe the first step that people are sort of very clear on what's in store and how very deliberate the, the processing is later on so they, they know they've got to keep all of their documentation together. They have to follow through at that point, it's not. It's not that there, there is an entitlement to lots of care from the federal government to make sure that they're processed properly. Yeah, I, I think what I'm hearing you say is maybe at the uh, the front end when you have a a resident that signs up to, for the military that you say you know this is what you got to do. Yeah, like so a, that essentially by the time they get out, you know what they're ready to take the oath. Right. So I mean, yeah. a little more full disclosure than a sweeping promise of. The, the golden pot at the end of the rainbow. Well, well and that is, it's, it's essentially, you know, some of them were telling me that the recruiters were saying, by the time you finish, you'll be a citizen. I don't know if that is true or not. Uh, however, that being the case, I, I think it's reasonable to think that as a resident, when you go off and fight for this country and you're willing to put it all on the line for this great country, that there's an expectation that you have somehow earned something like or similar to citizenship. After all, you, you, you take that oath, you know, to fight for this country. And so I, I think that we need to go in that direction, which is to, you know, make sure we're clear on the expectations and there is a clear pathway to becoming a citizen. And, and remember, we're talking about legal residents honorably discharged who serve this country. We're not even talking about legal residents that actually made the ultimate sacrifice for this country, because those residents who made, you know, made the ultimate sacrifice are also not automatic citizens. Right. So maybe we ought to think about giving them automatic citizenship once they pass away in the line of duty. Which is called benefits to their family, correct? Uh, maybe, maybe not, but okay. I think it's 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 important that they. You know, they have that citizenship. If they, if, again, if they died for this country, I think that's the right thing to do. Give them citizenship. For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader Radio, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org, my guest for this portion of the hour is United States Congressman Lou Correa, representing California's 46th District. We're talking today about deported veterans with whom he has met in Tijuana at the end of May of this year with other representatives in Congress as well. So do you have any specific remedies that are in the processing now in, in the U.S. Congress? I know uh, that there's a number of efforts. The one effort I'm familiar with, and that is that we're going to ask the armed services to put special emphasis to make sure that they look at this issue, to make sure, again, that we assure that these folks upon discharge or right before the discharge or when they sign up are made aware that they need to become citizens. Uh, I, I think that's a good policy. I would love to see when that resident signs up for, for Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, uh, Coast Guard, that uh, – they're told, you know what, you're, you're a resident, 
we need to make you a citizen. So you know what? Every day you're going to have to study for an hour. Every week you're going to have to do this. And make sure that these folks, once they finish, you know what? They're, they're, they're citizens because they've you know, completed all of their requirements uh, to become citizens. Congressman Correa, when you visited these deported veterans, were there any who previously lived in Orange County or even in your own district? Not in, I don't remember anybody in my district, but uh, all around me. Uh, and, and I have to tell you, that doesn't mean that there aren't any from my district. Here's the interesting irony in, yes. in that we don't know how many of these veterans, legal residents, have been deported. Um, these 30 or so veterans decided to stay in Tijuana and, and fight to return to the U.S. I wouldn't be surprised there's a lot of them that re, you know, got deported to other countries Right. decided, you know what, uh, I will move ahead and try to survive in other parts of the world. And interesting thing is I'm hearing there's a lot of Asian veterans, Asians that have served in our forces, you know, honorably discharged, uh, and there's a whole lot of them in Asia as well. So these veterans are all over the world, not just Mexico, right. but all over the world. And... And the question is, who's keeping, you know, tabs? I don't think anybody really is right now. Oh, that is. And, mm. and that's, that's another sad uh, statement because we don't know how big the issue is. We just know the issue is there. Well, we've talked about your entourage that visited with you in Tijuana. What about is, what is the sense among your Veterans Administration committee members about this population? I think all all. all uh, you're asking me to uh, speak for the Veterans Committee in general. There's a lot of folks on that committee. And I would say in general, most of the members of the Veterans Service Committee probably feel the way I do, which is we have to comply with our moral obligation to our veterans, which is if you serve for our country, you are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, we need to take care of you. And to me, uh, deporting a veteran after he's honorable discharge it does not to be not consistent with that promise that we made our veterans. And that's why we have to fix this. And I think if you spoke to you know, these members of this Veterans Affairs Committee, for the most part, many would probably feel the same way. Okay. Okay, that's Democrat or Republican. Okay. Well, I just want to wind the interview down with you're here on the 4th of July recess, and I want to congratulate you on making yourself available for town halls. And it's not easy. You've represented many different parts of your record with your constituents. We're a little in the 45th Congressional District, we're a little deprived of town halls. I, I don't know if there is something you could uh, make an appeal to your congressional delegation members, how important it is to honor that responsibility. Well, let me put it to you this way. Please. Um, you know, my, uh, my wife tells me, you can't control what other people do, but you can control what you do. And my answer to you is, uh, if you live in the 45th and you want to be part of the 46th, move into the 46th. We welcome you. So come on over, and we will be more than happy to meet with you. 
and and hang out with you. Uh, you know, I, I'm honored to represent uh, Central Lawrence County. Uh, it, public service is, is as you know, uh, a labor of love. It's a great honor to be in Congress, especially for a kid like me who kind of grew up in the streets of yes. Central Orange County. And and uh, but for the grace of God, God knows where I'd be. And today I'm blessed to represent uh, Central Orange County in Congress. Something I never dreamed of. And uh, and I will tell you, I take this job seriously. I take the responsibility very seriously, especially given all the turmoil around the world and we talk about veterans today and i can tell you i i've seen many of our young men and women that have served overseas come back and um it's painful for me to say that i've also been at many funerals to welcome back a lot of our veterans that have made the ultimate sacrifice and to see their families grieve uh over them is a very painful process and it's one that makes me realize and it reminds me of that saying that freedom isn't free. A lot of these young men and women that make the ultimate sacrifice, they're fighting for a freedom. And I honor their memory and I honor them and their families. And a big part of my job is to make sure we continue to take care of our veterans. Because you know what? When they take that oath and go fight for us, they do it with honor and selfishly. So we've got to make sure we keep our moral obligation to take care of them. Congressman Correa, uh, just one one last point about that. Some of those families themselves are not documented, correct? That's correct. So we and, honor and I, them. And again, th this is what makes the immigration issue documented, undocumented, uh, not a simple one. Um, I tell the story of, of this young man, this veteran, his name is Jose Angel Garibay. Look him up. Google him. He was a Marine. Young Marine out of Orange County. Uh, he made the ultimate sacrifice in this last set of wars in the Middle East. Matter of fact, he was the first person to make the ultimate sacrifice out of Orange County in the Middle East. And I bring up his story because he came to this country without any documents. He made the ultimate sacrifice. I know him because I asked U.S. Congress to give him citizenship posthumously after he passed away. And I know for a fact that up until recently, his mother was still undocumented and his mother could not get a driver's license. And, and so here's a mother brings her son to the U.S., both without any documents. He goes and fights as a Marine, makes the ultimate sacrifice. The mom's here without any documents. And up until recently, couldn't get a driver's license. So, you know, that is, you know, these factoids, you, you look at them and you begin to understand that our immigration laws are broken. They don't reflect our economic situation. They don't reflect our political situation. And they also don't reflect what's right or wrong right now in this country. I actually know his uncle. And I, so I just want to make sure we're all clear on as we wrap up the interview the status of Jose's mother at this point. Does she have now legal residency? I'll have to look back and check in on her. Okay. I've not, I've, yeah. you know, I, I lost track of her, uh, but I should go back and see what's going on. But again, um, my job as a legislator was to make sure that he got 
his legal his, his, his citizenship, and we did that. And uh, again, the irony was that his mom was still undocumented when we, we last saw her. On that note of saturated irony, I would like to thank my guest for this portion of the program, U.S. Congressional Member of California's 46th District, Mr. Lou Correa. Thank you, Congressman Correa, for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you very much, and thanks for your time and interest. You have a lovely fourth. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll be right back with the power couple, Mary Lee and Charles Black on the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guests for this portion of the program are Charles and Mary Lee Black, both board members of the Orange County chapter of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence. As members of a club that no one ever would choose, the Blacks have both founded this chapter in 1995 during a period where they grieved the death of their son, Matthew, the victim of an armed burglary in New York City. Charles has appeared many times on Ask a Leader. Now it's a few notes. It's her turn to be introducing Mary Lee Black, Charles' partner in life and in pure activism. Mary Lee became the Western Regional Organizer for the Million Mom March in 2000. And folks, let it sink in what has transpired since 2000. Uh, Mary Black was also the co-founder and president of the Bell Campaign, a grassroots organization in Orange County, California. She frequently provides testimony before local, state, and federal legislators. Mary Lee Black completed her Bachelor's of Science in Nursing at UCLA and later a public health certification also at UCLA. Charles has been honored, as I've said before, for his work with this chapter but honored by the Loyola Law School, the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. And as I've given his other introduction, we'll go into the interview shortly. As I do each time, I do take stock of the loss of their son. It's important, people, that you understand that. Both Charlie and Mary Lee Black are Republicans, and we'll peek under those hoods as I welcome the return of them to the show on a string of more somber notes since Charles last was on this show during a fraught period of the nation, getting acquainted with the new president and the new sheriff on the president's cabinet, Jeff Sessions. Charles and Mary Lee Black come to us today from Laguna Hills, California. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Thank you for the opportunity, Claudia. Thank you. Well, I'm going to just take a moment for everybody to, we're going to read the Second Amendment. Here's, you can hear from the lovely four-page piece that the New York Times gave us, but you can find it in any constitution. The Second Amendment reads as follows. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So those are the words today on the 4th of July program that we're having. I wanted to start with 
the latest launching from the National Rifle Association, an initiative, I see it as they're staunching their diminished sales. I would like for both of you to comment as much as you are willing on this campaign underway and the hazards that you see in the toxic message they're putting out. I'm not going to play the, the, the one minute ad that they're running. It's for everyone to digest independently and look at that. I don't want it to be considered an endorsement on this show, so I don't want any part of it on the recording here, but I would like for the Blex to comment on this new initiative. Well, I take this work that we do as a framing of a public health issue. And politics, unfortunately, have intruded onto our work, and so we can't ignore it. However, having said that, I appreciate that you did not rerun that video. I found it uh, very uh, offensive, personally, but I choose to believe that I want to say and things that uh, I you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That old proverb, I think, I, I'd like to take the high road, and I, I just would leave it at that. I found it very offensive, and others have called it very dangerous, and I respect their views, but I prefer not to give it much attention, and we have work to do, and what we're doing is not offensive to uh, any amendments, and it will save lives. And so uh, I am very, I'm not discouraged. I think that that type of rhetoric will just propel more people to become involved in the important work that we do with the Brady Campaign. You have to understand that the National Rifle Association Board is now dominated by representatives from the gun industry, and their motive is a profit motive and not really the welfare of our United States of America. I'd like just a short sentence or so from an article by Bill Moyers and Michael Winship. Yes. June 29th. Right. I'm quoting, on the surface, this is a recruitment video for the National Rifle Association, but what you are really about to see is a call for white supremacy and armed insurrection, each word and image deliberately chosen to stir the instincts of troubled souls who lash out in anger and fear. Under the current political circumstances, this is the last thing we need, Claudia. Well, I was riveted by how very toxic the message was, and I'm going to turn to both of you for what would you suggest is the best response, a way of preventing some kind of aftermath from this, uh, protecting against the upheaval that this campaign is clearly inciting? Reasonable people can disagree, but the way we come to solution in our society is by listening to each other and coming to a compromise so that lives are saved and we prevent injuries. We are fortunate to live here in California. We have the strongest gun laws in the United States. And over the past 20 years, we have reduced our gun mortality rate by some 54%, which is 27% greater than the national average. What we can do, what we can continue to do, is what we've done here in California. So when we're talking about 
this, I, I, I guess I wanted to give you just a brief moment since we're, we're watching where there have been some attacks in other countries. I'm thinking the United Kingdom where they were a knife attacks versus a gun attack. And so it's it's really considerably less lethal where there aren't guns that are permitted in the way they are in this country. I'm sure you have a, a reaction toward those differences. Yes, that's true. It's a, quite a demonstration, and that is because they have uh, good regulations in other countries. And I think uh, that was a lesson for all of us, and that having regulations do work. Gun laws do work. At the time of the Newtown shooting where we lost our 26 individuals, in Connecticut. there was a similar event in Japan, the home of the ninja, only it was a, it had a daycare center and it was a knife attack. And while a number of youngsters were injured, no one died. I think the issue here is the lethality and the common usage and the easy availability of this type of weaponry here in the United States. We need to reflect our words have meanings. We need to reflect on those meanings. So where we are regulating it, there is, as you say, a variation between states. And were the national law for reciprocity to enable gun, is it concealed weapon permit carriers to, or is it open carry, that they could... It's concealed weapon. It's concealed. And it has to be one of the worst pieces of legislation that have been promoted by the NRA ever. Uh, it's currently H.R. 38 in the House. It is currently S. 446 in the Senate, and they are promoting it as a reciprocity bill, which is similar to, in their words, our driver's licenses. The only problem with that, Claudia, is when we have reciprocity for driver's licenses, that's done on a state-by-state -state agreement at the state level. This is a federal law that would make us accept the weakest standards in the law of the land. We have a Tenth Amendment. We have states' rights. What they are asking us to do is they are asking us to accept a state that basically has no standards whatsoever and apply that to every single application for a concealed carry permit. People who would not even pass standards in California, violent criminals, folks with serious mental illness, Domestic violence offenders, they would all be able to pass and obtain a concealed weapon permit and carry here in California. Folks who could not qualify in California could go to a neighboring state, get that permit, come back to California, legally carry. They would be in our, on our streets, in our communities. We call that the Arm Anyone Act, and it is a true disaster for ourselves and our communities. Well, yes, I'm sufficiently unnerved with this development, how far has the House Resolution 38 Senate 446 come through in the lawmaking? They are still asking for co-sponsors, and what is tragic here in Orange County is Mimi Walters, right there in the UCI district, she has actually signed on as a co-sponsor of this bill together with... Um, Ed Royce. And fortunately, we have sent letters to all of our Orange County House members and our two federal senators alerting them, and nobody else has joined this, but Mimi Walters and Ed Royce have not withdrawn their support, and I honestly believe they do not understand the severe consequences of this bill. It would just undermine all the good work that we have done in California around 
carrying concealed and making sure that those who do have a concealed carry permit are well trained and have good cause. If I may, Claudia, yes. I would like to uh, give a telephone number. I would love this. Okay. If we would like to ask your listeners to call this number, your representative at 202-224-3121, and that is the uh, switchboard and ask to be connected to your representative. And... Um, the, and I'm thinking, uh, Mary Lee, I'm thinking that perhaps this is one overloaded switchboard at this point, and we might give the suggestion to listeners to pull up on the web their respective congressional members and call that their district or their Washington, D.C. offices directly. That is, a, that is certainly another option, but it has been our experience that this switchboard is pretty efficient. But uh, yes, always, always, or call the district office and voice your opposition to H.R. 38 to these House of Representatives, especially to Mimi Walters and Ed Royce. It's unconscionable that they would not be looking out for the safety of their constituents, and this goes flies in the face of public safety. Are there any checks and balances? I'm really concerned about the, the availability of campaign funds to support this movement through Congress and the camp, the kinds of support in the White House, do you see any kinds of any means for counteracting this legislation coming through? The only way that we can stop this legislation is through our representatives and the voice of the public. So I think that, and your vote, of course, of you know, remember, uh, you know, attention spans are, are short. And so we are allegedly a democracy, and this is our system. We vote who is going to represent us. So if you're, you need to let your representative know how you feel. If they don't carry out your wishes, you need to find another candidate, promote that, support that candidate, and help get that person elected to office. Uh, we were on campus the evening that the UCI students had a solidarity rally for support of the UC Santa Barbara shooting. And they emphasized solidarity, but they didn't emphasize a remedy. You have the opportunity with your broadcast to the UCI campus, to the UCI community, to let them know that there are remedies. And that remedy is their voice, and their remedy is calling their House and Senate representatives to voice their opinions. It is extremely important that they be heard. You can also write letters to the editor, uh, write an op-ed, inform others about this legislation. There's a lot that people can do uh, individually to get the safer communities we all want. My wife has a sign in our home office that states, no snowflake ever felt responsible for the avalanche. That Claudia, takes on new listeners, we can create an avalanche. Yes, yes, yes. Speaking of snowflakes, well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Mary Lee and Charles Blick, board members of the Orange County chapter of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence, dedicated to preventing gun deaths and injuries and dedicated to the national public health. 
We're talking about the reciprocity legislation through the being considered now in the national legislature, there's much more to cover. I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about, too, it's on the national level, what is the regulation of silencers, the importance of a silencer being that if you take the sound away from the discharge of a firearm, you are ceasing to warn others that danger is present. You know, that's such an important issue because You know, how many of us have heard of murders with the use of silencers? Not many. And that is because silencers are well regulated. Why would we want to take that away? And that's on the national level that this is under consideration. It is H.R. 367. And it's interesting, they call it the Hearing Protection Act. Think about that for a second. When you go to a shooting range, they have apparatus that they cover your ears. We already have that. I think that is just a real red herring. You have to understand that silencers are regulated under the National Firearms Act. They do not actually make the gun silent. Instead, they alter and disperse the sound of gunfire, making it harder for law enforcement and bystanders to identify the sound, where it's coming from, and actually the sound of gunfire. And all you have to think about is just a couple of days ago in Alexandria, Virginia, when the Republican House and Senate members were practicing for their softball game and that shooting. If there was a silencer on that gun, there would have been a lot more carnage, and they could not have immediately found where the sound was coming from and identified the shooter. Uh, It's just common sense. In fact, California has outlawed silencers altogether, and we need to keep that law intact. It's interesting, too, because um, many cities have taken to this new technology where if a firearm is discharged in a neighborhood, the quadrants are reported to the uh, law enforcement and they can get help to that community in a very quick fashion. Again, why would we want to give up that tool? This technology is being utilized uh, more and more and it's helping to get first responders there very quickly. So could you post us where at this point is this in the legislation, the House Resolution 367? Is it, and who, it was anybody, actually scheduled for hearing on the, in a committee on the day of the yes, Alexandria, right. Virginia shooting, and they pulled the bill from the hearing. So it can it's come not, up. It's not scheduled for a hearing at this point. So it could be resubmitted for at a hearing. At any point in time, yes. Yes, and to that point, I'd like to give our email address for your listeners. Yes. They would like to uh, be put on our alert list, our newsletter. It's uh, orangecounty at bradymail.org. Again, orangecounty at bradymail.org. And we will be sure to include them in our e-newsletter to let them know about upcoming legislations, when to call, and when the votes votes are going to be, so you can uh, voice your opinion. So is this something that the National Rifle Association feels like they're they're needing to weigh in on heavily, or they're sort of uh, letting up on the pedal that you're able to see? Their number one priority is the reciprocity bill. Okay. Want a return on their $30 million that they spent to elect the current president, although this is also another one of their bills that they would like to have passed. Okay, well, so there is also the discussion 
There is the, the issue of the U.S. District Court's preliminary injunction against a California law regarding uh, large capacity ammunition magazines. Uh, is there anything that you would like us to consider it, where that's headed and that there's any kind of local yes, activism? I feel, that I feel like we have a lone wolf district judge. You have to understand that there were decisions on the same day, one for the allowing the limit of the capacity, the other not allowing and putting the uh, stay in place involving that particular enforcement of our new law. Now, the second, fourth, fifth circuits together with the D.C. circuit have already decided that we have the legal right to create that limit. With the decisions that have come out of the Ninth Circuit, I'm comfortable, once this is taken up on appeal, that that one district judge's opinion will be overturned. I also would like to, at this point, let the uh, listeners know that the case out of San Diego, again, involving the concealed carry permitting when the Peruta sued the sheriff of San Diego, right. that has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. They did not allow a hearing on that particular judgment. And the ability for California to regulate and have good cause for the issuance of their CCW permits remains intact and the law of the state of California. The Supreme Court, by not hearing the appeal, left the Ninth Circuit decision intact, which supported the San Diego Sheriff's decision, and we still have good cause for the issuance of CCWs here in California. I'm pleased that the Supreme Court has once again allowed lower court decisions to remain in place supporting our legislative agenda. So the the point I'd heard covered last week on a, a sister radio station was that the Supreme Court seems not to be wanting to challenge what the lower courts are doing. They're not they haven't really weighed in on any kind of gun provisions from their own decision since the I believe the Heller case, correct? Yes, that's correct. There's been roughly uh, 1,000 1, challenges. 97% of them have failed, although we need to be vigilant because, unfortunately, with the new appointment of Justice Gorsuch, he appears to be of the same mold as Justice Clarence Thomas and Alito, and they are agitating for the court to take up a further discussion of whether or not there's a constitutional right to carry outside of the home, not just have guns in the home for the right of self-defense. But so far, the majority of our Supreme Court is very, is very comfortable with the Heller and McDonald decisions, which simply state that you have a constitutional right to have a handgun in your home for the right of self-defense. So you're putting us all on notice that with the new composition of the Supreme Court, though, we must be wary of where the gun rulings are going to be headed at since the because it was and we need to be extremely active in this 2018 election so that if the current administration our president who uh, enjoys addressing the nra conventions is allowed to appoint another one or two supreme court justices we could have a true upheaval of our laws that we've become accustomed to for the last several decades so among all the sobering news, we also ought to be bringing up the California Assembly Bill 785. So while states' rights remains intact for a few more months, <laughs> or a few more years, 
The California Assembly Bill 785 is called the Disarm Hate Act, closing the gap in the current California law, which would otherwise permit individuals convicted of violent hate crimes to possess and acquire firearms within 10 years of their conviction. So what do you see this fix is going to be? We are very pleased with this particular bill. It is overwhelmingly supported in our legislature. We are campaigning to have our current governor sign this bill. It would prohibit individuals convicted of a misdemeanor hate crimes involving the use or threatened use of force from purchasing or possessing guns for 10 years. We don't need this type of temperament running around on our streets, on our freeways, road rage, hate crimes. Uh, We just don't need these people possessing firearms. We're talking again about the common good, the safety of our communities. And where is this in the California Assembly, and does it have bipartisan support? Passed the Assembly. It's now in the Senate. Yeah, and it has a very favorable prognosis in the Senate. So, yes, it was an Assembly bill. It has successfully passed the hurdles in the Senate. It's gone on to the Senate now. And does it have bipartisan support? No, unfortunately they do not, but since the Democrats enjoy a supermajority, we anticipate that this bill will end up on to intact on the governor's desk. Now, we really need to focus on the governor to make sure that we let him know that he needs to support this. Our governor has been consistently inconsistent on our gun bills, so we don't take anything for granted because it gets through our legislature. Well, I guess this sort of begs a few questions, though, why there isn't bipartisan support. Do you have any theories about this, or is this another matter of not a political ideology but a political orthodoxy, that that the GOP just does not go against any kind of gun regulation? You know, it's, it's a shame, Claudia. You're right. When I was growing up, and Mary Lee and I are Republicans, we were in lockstep with the uh, law enforcement. We were in lockstep with the protecting the public good. And the NRA, when National Rifle Association, when it was founded, it was hunters who dealt with safety, and it dealt with the common good, and it dealt with sporting situations. Unfortunately, now that it's been taken over by the representatives from the gun manufacturers, they are more of a profit-driven. I remember growing up in Jess Unruh's district, take you back a few years, and he coined a phrase that money is the mother's milk of politics. And apparently the National Rifle Association, through the gun manufacturers, has enough dollars to influence some of the folks in our legislature, and that's a shame because they're putting dollars above our public safety. Mary Lee, did you want to add to some of this? Well, I do think that some of this rhetoric is going to spur people who are like-minded who perhaps have been part of the silent majority. I think we've already witnessed that in our communities uh, with some of the uh, rallies and gatherings and at town hall, or actually non-existent town hall meetings where people gather without their uh, uh, representative present because they want to make their voices heard. Uh, So I think that uh, perhaps even though it's very distressing and, and yes, disturbing um, to hear this rhetoric, it's also having an effect. And I also have a... um, a new law that I am very hopeful about. It was enacted and became effective uh, in January of 2016, 
which is the Violence Prevention Restraining Order yes. Law. And as a public health nurse, I find this uh, a great tool for prevention where a family who is uh, concerned about a loved one and they consider him danger to himself or to others, that there now is a remedy in civil court, not criminal court, but in a civil court where they can have go before a judge and have a temporary restraining order for up to a year, which is renewable, to get guns out of that person's possession. I think that bodes very well for making our community safer. And people who work with people in crisis need to know about this law. And I'm working on a task force, a campaign called Speak for Safety that is notifying and educating law enforcement, judiciary, social workers, physicians, all those who come in contact with people in crisis. Now we have a tool. And how do people follow the, that campaign for safety? You go to speakforsafety.org. There are materials there that can be downloaded, and you know I can see them in every psychologist's office and every family law center where people go for help that they will come in contact with this material and be able to ex access the court. Also, law enforcement it can also use this tool. So if you're not a family member, but you know someone who is in crisis, you can go to law enforcement and they can do this civil petition to get guns out of the hands of people who are considered a danger to themselves. And it's, I use that word dangerous because this is not mental health issue per se. You don't have to have a mental illness. You have to have a demonstrable dangerousness. That's the key there. If they're considered a danger to themselves or to others, I think this is a great tool that's going to reduce our mortality and injury rate in, with firearms if people know about it. So that's why I always try to bring it up wherever I'm speaking with people who can help spread this great law that we now have. Well, as we wrap up, I would like, though, for both of you to weigh in with these are many measures that have been legislated on the state level, but something like a reciprocity national legislation to allow concealed weapons to move around in any state, then someone who is a danger to themselves or someone with other features in another state could bring in a concealed weapon. How does California, how do other states with more regulation protect themselves at this point? They need to defeat that legislation. That's the simple answer. If that law becomes the national standard, then we don't have an opportunity. It would undermine our California law and render it useless. It's a, we call it the Arm Anyone Act. Felons, domestic abusers, mentally ill, anybody who could obtain a concealed weapon permit in any state, and there are 12 states that basically have no standards whatsoever. They're called constitutional carry states. They would be legally able to carry on our streets and in our communities. It is an absolute that we need to defeat that legislation. That's H.R. 38 and S. 446. 
and we need to be loud, we need to be strong, we need to beat it, and beat it badly. That is today's second patriotic message for all of us to pursue. I'd like to thank Charles and Mary Lee Black, board members of the Orange County chapter of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence for being on Ask a Leader today. I honor every hour of work, every hour of your soul you pour into this campaign for all of our protection. We are very appreciative of the opportunity to talk to your audience, Claudia. You are our sword, and we love you, and we greatly appreciate your hard work. Thank you. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. Thank you very much. Well, all that was the wrap for today's Ask a Leader. Next week, we're going to have on Professor Danielle Piumelli, along with UCI Law School faculty and former state senator Joe Dunn, both on the cutting edge of research and institution building around California's statewide approval of the legalization of cannabis. That's Prop 64. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>